live. How are we starting this? What are we doing? How are we introing? That's a good question. I feel like we we don't have a name for this yet, so I think we should just, just start <laughs> it. Usually, I mean, Monica yeah. is great at introing this. Do you want to intro or do you want me to intro? This is, it's kind of fun to be unplanned about this, I will say. It reminds me of being like a little kid making like videos and you know what I mean? Except Does this hurt your soul? I was that person that was like, guys, no, we need a plan. Does this like, hurt your soul? Okay, this hurt your gonna soul. Do this, and I'm going to do this. And I was that person. You know what? We're just making Bob Goff the crowd right now. So. Oh, strategic whimsy. Strategic whimsy. I low-key was thinking about how it would be kind of funny if we just called the podcast strategic whimsy. I was kind of thinking that too. Okay. I think we should just do it. Okay. Okay. Cool. So... So this is our intro, basically, is in, this is our effort or attempt to infuse strategic whimsy into our lives. So instead of planning everything out and being super uh, detailed and regimented, we are going to do something fun that we enjoy and just share it with others. So this is our strategic whimsy experiment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Making Bob Groff proud. So uh, maybe it'd be helpful to give a little backstory about who the heck Bob Goff is since we've mentioned him. Um, he's this jolly man that's written this wonderful book <laughs> called Love Does. Um, kind of the, the thesis of the book is really around how love is an action and that it's not something that is felt. It's, it's oftentimes it's felt, but that is not the the main purpose of it. The purpose is for it to be expressed outwardly um, in the form of action and to be seen and to be out in the ethers and out in the universe. Um, One of the parts that is talked about in one of the chapters is strategic whimsy, which is um, something that Sarah and I, when we were reading this book, just loved that phrase. We love strategy. (laughs) Um, which you'll probably learn about as we talk through our analysis of this movie, Christopher Robin. But um, the whimsy part is something that is definitely lost. It's kind of an interesting theme, especially with the movie and given some of the topics that we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, But that's kind of the backstory. And we, Sarah and I are both film lovers. We send many voice memos to each other after we've seen a movie in theaters, um, just back and forth. Some of them are seven minutes long and there'll be, you know, five, seven minute long voice memos in a row. Um, (laughs) just detailing our thoughts and our analyses and picking apart, um, the different components of a film and, why it evokes a certain emotion, why strategically they chose to have that shot versus the other shot. Um, All of those design choices that we just love to analyze, sometimes roast. Um, (laughs) It's really wonderful when they do it right. But that is kind of the backstory of this podcast, our little strategic whimsy experiment. And the movie that we are going to be discussing today is Christopher Robin. It just came out this past Friday at the lovely Discount Theater, which we whoop so whoop. much adore. Those $6 tickets are fantastic. <laughs> um, as a recent ex-Movie Pass uh, customer, <laughs> I'm a big fan. And um, we were very skeptical before watching this film, um, just after seeing the trailers. And it was kind of a a funny inside joke. We just would send each other uh, all of the marketing material that they tried to use to kind of build some hype around it. But that is the movie that we're going to be discussing today. Yes. So if you are unfamiliar with uh, Christopher Robin, this is the IMDb uh, description. It says, a working class family man. Christopher Robin, encounters his childhood friend, Winnie the Pooh, who helps him rediscover the joys of life. Ah, yes. (laughs) And uh, this is one of a few to date and more to come of Disney's live action series. (laughs) Yes. Which, um, yeah. what what to say what to say about that (laughs) that entire series yeah um 
it's an it's an interesting one. I definitely am curious about the strategy behind it. You know what they're thinking as far as maybe it's trying to play to two audiences that watch them growing up as cartoons and inevitably I've seen almost all of the ones that have come out so it's it's working effectively. They're marketing mm-hmm. their marketing and that um, respect is working effectively, but quality wise leave something to be desired yes <laughs> i'd rather watch my cartoons personally yes um so maybe that's the first topic that we can talk about is the whimsy and magic how well does this does christopher robin capture that sarah i know you have many thoughts on this <laughs> <laughs> so i was I was very skeptical um, about this movie, and when we talked about seeing it, um, I got really, really excited because uh, it was going to be like a Disney roast, basically, and I was just going to mock Disney for, what, two hours, and I was really excited, so that was the headspace that I went into this movie with, and then we're sitting down, and the um, the opening credits come on, and it's um, the same drawing that is in my Winnie the Pooh book that I still have from when I was a kid. And so when I see that map of the hundred acre wood come up on the screen, immediately I go, oh my gosh, I love this. And I got so excited because there's something so magical about that and just the hundred acre wood. And I can remember when I was a kid and it was wonderful and it was nostalgic. Mm -hmm. And then it went to the live action and I was disappointed again. Because there's something about um, just that that animation, and it was it was so it was the old school drawings. Like when it was up there, I remembered it because I studied that map as a kid. I pictured myself in the hundred acre wood with Pooh and Rabbit and Owl and like all of them. Like I was back in it, and I was so excited. And then you just can't have that same magic i feel in the live action that you can in something like that it didn't have the same nostalgia um that that map had as simple as the map was what did you think yeah i was when i when those opening credits were beginning it really reminded me initially first first reaction it reminded me of the opening of mulan i think i've seen that mm-hmm. movie so many times um yeah. And it has this unfolding of the, the the cherry blossom flowers on the screen as the opening credits are going. I don't know if you remember um, the opening. It's like a, it's not a huge part of the movie, so it's probably no. I love that scene. Yeah, it's- and and it's kind of the the sepia like beige beige ish tan um, paper, and this unfolding of the calligraphy and the cherry blossoms, right? So that's what it reminded me of. I actually think they did a really good job of recreating that um, storybook. It was like a brown um, brown pencil. They were trying to mimic the brown pencil that was in the actual physical book of Winnie mm-hmm. the Pooh. Um, and it reminded me a lot of how a lot of Disney animated films will kind of start that way with this yeah. um, book – kind of the wind opens up the book and the pages <laughs> flutter open and there's kind of a beginning voiceover of you know Cinderella once upon a time Cinderella blah 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 but it works in the animated um platform because you go from this animated book and this animated opening to the animated actual scene of Cinderella in her tower um or Mulan, the opening of Mulan, right? Mm-hmm. But it was kind of jarring to switch from this animated storybook, whimsical, magical opening credits shots to this kind of, it was this dreary, it, it was, I think it switched to this dreary like England setting that was live action. Mm-hmm. And this, the juxtaposition of that was really, really jarring so that yeah Yeah. that was my kind of initial reaction as well I was like oh I definitely agree and um (laughs) Sarah and I were actually whispering each other through this whole (laughs) opening credits sequence I would say a good like the first 15 minutes of it just commentating on how jarring it was and I think 
they kept switching back and forth. That was the thing. I think if they had started the, just the um, storybook opening and switched to the live action and stayed in the live action realm, it could have been a little bit more effective, but they kept going back and forth. And while they were going back and forth, they were also jumping through time. Mm -hmm. So that also led to the the confusion because it's like, okay, are we in a book? Are we in live action? And where are we in time? I don't mm -hmm. know. So it's a little disorienting. Yes. Yeah. And I remember that it would fade. So there would be like a scene that was depicted in the storybook way and then it would fade into the live action mm -hmm. and it would go from this really warm tone tan beige coloring to this bluish grayish tone mm -hmm. which is super jarring as well yeah yeah there were some beautiful shots um in that time sequence though there really were. And there was there was a couple moments when they they progressed through time really strategically and they did it really well. Mm -hmm. And we were like, oh, good job. But for the most mm -hmm. part, I was just wholly confused. And I felt like <laughs> I couldn't get my bearings of, oh, what is going on here? I shouldn't be this confused in Christopher Robin. Like, mm -hmm. I should know what's happening. <laughs> One of the... Um one of the shots that I remember super distinctly, and I think you had, you, you, you had reacted next to me, and it's why it's also super memorable, but it was when um, Christopher Robin's wife and his daughter were dancing next to his office, and there was this shot of just him going up to the double doors that were wide open and closing them, yeah. and I thought that was, that was well done. It spoke mm -hmm. a lot in maybe like a three-second shot. Yeah. And, and what gave that so much power is that like scenes earlier before um, Christopher Robin and his wife were married, maybe they were just married, I don't know, but they were dancing and they were joyful. And then you have like cut to a few scenes later and now he's not going to dance. So that was a good way to show um, how his character had changed mm -hmm. over the years. And so I thought that that was very strategic and that was very well done. Mm -hmm. I also distinctly remember, um, <laughs> it's funny, a lot of the memorable ones are the ones that we, we probably talked about in the theater, but um, the juxtaposition between his shots when he was, the shots of him at war and his wife and his daughter, and it was her birthday, and her blowing out the candles. And it would cut back and forth between the, can the shot of the candle yeah. and then the fire um, and the explosions in war. And it would just cut back and forth very quickly. I thought that was well done, too. Oh, me too. Yeah. Yeah, that was really good. Um, I, I was – when we were watching this, I was – kind of mulling this over in my head. And I don't think we talked about it after the film either, but I actually wished that we had gotten a little bit more scenes or a little bit more time to sit with Christopher Robin as a child and mm -hmm. seeing scenes of him and his life playing with his friends in the Hundred Acre Woods. Because I think it would have made his um, – the hardening of his heart a lot more powerful to have there's a, there would be a greater feeling of loss to see yes. that instead of a few shots of him as a child and a few scenes um and that there we I feel like I didn't get enough of him as a child to really feel the weight of him losing all of that no what I are your completely I completely agree because you you see that he still through all of these like tragic experiences that he had and even um you know leading up to the war like he was still joyful and he had some of that um childlikeness within him mm -hmm. um and so i think if we had known a little bit more of him when he was a kid and how he acted in the hundred acre wood, then we might've seen some of those like subtler changes that happened as he grew um, instead of him, you know, being this happy guy and then he goes to the war and he comes back and he's not happy. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I feel mm-hmm. like we would have had a little bit more stake in it and we really would have, we would have cared a little bit more that mm-hmm. he was a workaholic who didn't have fun anymore. <laughs> it really reminds me of um, my friend's commentary after we saw Rogue One. Um, she she is so funny. She's super snarky and sarcastic and just keeps it so real. But we finished watching that movie. She walks out. I said, what do you think of it? She was like, I feel like we didn't even get to know the character. So when they died, I didn't care. Yeah. And it's so true. We didn't, yep. especially in that movie as well, I feel like we didn't get to know the characters enough to have the weight of that ending be as powerful as it could have been. And the whole arc of the film is, of Christopher Ramid, is him returning to this childlike state. But I think we didn't get enough of it at the beginning. Exactly. To feel like, oh, yes, he's returning to this part of himself that's always been there. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, it it fell flat. And I felt like as we were going through the movie, like I knew the general premise of the movie and how, mm-hmm. how we were going to get there. Uh, but it just, it felt like this, this, uh, aimless wandering that I didn't (laughs) care about with characters I didn't really care about Mm because these weren't the characters that I remembered from when I was a kid, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like they tried to, to rely on some of our nostalgia, um, Mm -hmm. which just makes me go, okay, that was lazy writing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sarah, you should give a little bit of backstory about what you do (laughs) and why that is probably more frustrating for you than it might be for me. Well, I am an author and uh, (laughs) I am uh, currently working on a fiction novel. Um, So for the last year, I've really been studying um, things like character development and plot and pacing and, you know, all of the things that it takes to write a good novel. So a lot of that, uh, things that I've learned I now apply to film and uh so I'm always very aware of writing and character development and that's usually the first thing that I notice when they're (laughs) either good or bad (laughs) yes which makes some of her rants about lazy writing so entertaining (laughs) and so fantastic some of my favorite um I just want to call out that I really loved the casting for the young Christopher Robin I think they did it superb job with that mm-hmm. he was so endearing yeah yeah we just wanted more of the, little, the cute <laughs> little boy we just wanted more of it <laughs> um on the topic of the the aimless wandering that you just mentioned totally um had that same thought i think it was um maybe the last 20 minutes of the film where there's really a sense of tension and purpose to what they were trying to accomplish. So um, it was really the Christopher Robin's daughter wanting to get the um, the important work papers back to her father who was giving this important presentation for his bosses that he was supposed to be working on all weekend. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a real drive and attention, uh, um, tension there and a forward momentum. Yeah. But that whole middle section, what were we doing? What what was the purpose? I guess it's over, you know, a little bit high level is probably Christopher Robin rediscovering his connection with Pooh and his friends, but mm-hmm. there was no stake. There was no yeah. uh, ticking time bomb, for lack of a better term for it, that would drive it forward. Um, yeah, it was, felt slow in that middle section. And to me, like... I I wouldn't have minded the aimless wandering if it felt intentional because like the whole movie, you know, has has a slower pace. You know, Winnie the Pooh is that character that's just plodding along and he's just happy as a clam going wherever he's going. And so I I'm okay with some of that because it's very much that character and he was kind of the one that was driving uh, that middle section, but it still felt unintentional it it didn't feel like okay we're going to be intentional and we're going to make this part slow and we want you to be in this and we're just going to wander about and we're going to we're going to awe you with everything that we're doing in this portion because we just we want you to take it in and be in the hundred acre wood like it didn't feel like that to me so I just went 
okay, why are you wasting my time? So it felt like we just like were moseying about and meandering for two thirds of the movie. And then we just launched into a full on sprint and then it was over. I was yeah. Like, Whoa. Okay. I guess we're done. Cool. <laughs> yeah. To get really meta, I w- <laughs> it would have been kind of funny if they had done that a better job of that, of, hey, the whole point, the overarching thesis of this film is something comes out of nothing. Let's just mm-hmm. give you 30 minutes, 40 minutes of, like, nothingness, of just aimless wandering, and yeah. just let you sit with it. You know, like, I think there could have been something there that they could have done. Yeah, I would have been totally down for that. That would have been great. Yeah, yeah. In my head, I knew that Christopher Robin would rediscover this sense of childhood and playfulness. And it was kind of just an inevitable, okay, when is it going to happen? How is he going to get there? Just waiting for the inevitable. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yes. Um, On the topic of whimsy and magic that we were talking about earlier. Sarah, do you want to tell us about the book that you found when you got home? Yes. And your reaction. I was so excited when I found it because a lot of the time I either like give away books or it got lost in one of my many moves, but I still have my copy of Winnie the Pooh. And I remember reading this when I was like six And so it was just, it was such a good find. And so I'm going to actually read it this week. But like, I just, I read the intro uh, to the book after, after we watched the movie. And my heart was like, so full after reading this, because just, just the language that he uses and the world that he creates is just, it's so wonderful. And I didn't get that in the movie. So I'm so excited that I found this book because then I can rediscover um, the Hundred Acre Wood and I can remember all of these characters that I loved so much as a child. So that was a really exciting find. Uh, We should have recorded this after (laughs) you read that because your roast of it, of this movie, would probably be even more savage. We might have to do a part two. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And... That kind of um, falls in the same realm of this coloring issue that I I really had, and we yes we had begun to talk about. Um, it's along the same lines of how do you capture that same whimsy and magic that you inherently have in an animated um, in an animated platform in a live action. That's a really, Mm -hmm. actually really interesting challenge. Yeah. Um, Inherently the rules of animation and live action, you're kind of in these two, the rules of the world are different. Um, The things you can do in animation, the the type of magical things, it's harder to do in live action. Um, But even just from a look and feel and atmosphere perspective, it's a really big challenge to capture the whimsy and magic um, in a live action. And I th- actually think some of Disney's other live actions have done a better job of this. I think Beauty and the Beast did a much better job than Christopher Robin did. So um, my issues with the coloring are <laughs> there was this uh, bluish grayish tone throughout a lot of the Hundred Acre Woods um, scenes throughout a lot of the film. Yeah. But it, it didn't – it felt cold and dark and kind of eerie. And especially mm-hmm. because the, the stuffed animals – I shouldn't call them stuffed animals. The characters, the Woody the Pooh, <laughs> Tigger, especially Tigger. Yeah. Their fur was stringy. Uh it looked so uncomfortable. Like, Ewan McGregor was touching them, and I was like, oh, my God, that must have felt awful on you. Like, oh, don't touch that. It looked kind of like this hay straw type of texture, really stringy, um, really washed out. Uh, the, there wasn't that saturation, that warmth of color that when I think of Winnie the Pooh, this golden, um, adorable, fluffy little 
creature. Mm-hmm. None of that. They really went for this. I don't know if it was an. They were trying to go for this more artistic interpretation or look and feel, which is what I'm thinking that they were aiming towards. But um, it cast this kind of eerie atmosphere on the Hundred Acre Woods, which made all of this these talking stuffed animals on screen look even more creepy and strange. <laughs> um, and I think they, there's, they could have done something around the contrast between this industrial um, yeah. city in England. I think it's London. Yeah, it was yeah. London. This industrial London with these grayish tones and this warm, sunny, with the sun streaming through the trees and this warmth and, and misty atmosphere that they could have done in the Hundred Acre Witch, which would have been so beautiful and magical, really like Wizard of Oz-esque. But they really didn't go for that <laughs> at all. What were and your I thoughts like, on the coloring? I feel like they tried uh, to do that because, you know, there was that, um, like, the dark, eerie time was when, like, Christopher Robin had just arrived. And so all of the the characters were, were hiding. And there was some sort of, like... There, for some reason, there was this pall cast over the Hundred Acre Wood, but we didn't understand why it was so dark and eerie. I was wondering if it was like a Santa Claus situation, like an elf where they just had to believe and then his sleigh flew again. Like, I didn't know if it was like one of those kind of situations. So if like Christopher Robin believed, then it would be bright and sunny again. Like, mm-hmm. I thought that's where we were going. And they kind of did that, but it wasn't obvious enough for me to go, oh, that's what you're doing. That was well done. I see your point. It was kind of like, oh, I guess we can do that. So here we go. But we're not going to explain why we're doing it. We're just going to throw this in here and confuse you. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was something a little bit off about it. I actually think they could have – there was a few shots, and you and I in the theater both – (laughs) <laughs> turn to each other. Ah, oh, yes, that that one works. That shot works. That coloring works. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few peppered in there that was actually really stylistically done well. It was yeah. It was still that um, grayish tone, but a little bit warmer, a little bit more. I think it was a little bit more purple. I remember, um, but in general, it was just really eerie. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Which is just—it's an interesting choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, along the same vein of live action and the challenges of live action is animating these stuffed creatures. Um, I don't know if, what your sentiments on this were, but I think that they, as far as the eyes, I I think eyes are super important when you're kind of animating, um, inanimate objects, the eyes of Pooh and Tigger and Piglet, I thought were super well done. Eeyore, especially, there was so much that they did with Eeyore's eye and that like that human um, look in his eye. Yes, the ones that I think they didn't do as well on were um, it was Owl and Rabbit. I thought those looked a little bit too evil and creepy. Did you feel that way at all? Um. I think what what probably bothered me the most about all of them is that none of them looked like they fit together. Like Kanga and Rue were made out of the same material clearly and then Piglet was his his material was the same as theirs but just a different color. And so they actually looked like stuffed animals to me. Mm-hmm. Tigger looked like a stuffed animal that had been through the dryer and so he was just puffy <laughs> and I went Mm, buddy, we got to fix you. It, so it, it was just odd for me to see all of these characters to, together in one spot because they didn't feel like they went together. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Because the I think the, the type of whatever material that they'd used for the eyes for Pooh, um, Tigger, Piglet, Rue, and Kanga. Mm-hmm were similar. They were very similar. And their fur and everything was it is I guess it's not fur. Their their exterior had a similar <laughs> um, texture. But the other two I feel like they just threw in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I 
I haven't looked it up, but Rabbit looked like another Rabbit from another Disney movie. I just don't know which one off the top of my head, but it was bothering me the entire time. I was like, really? You just like stole a rabbit from that other movie and just plopped him in here? That's rude. Uh, and Owl was kind of creepy, which makes me sad because I loved Owl as yeah. a kid. I really did. It was did. the eyebrows. It was, oh, it, it was, oh, it was so those gigantic eyebrows that pointed straight upwards and made him look angry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He looked so angry. I didn't want him to be angry. Oh, yeah. Basically... I think Rue was very cute. So basically we need a film with Rue and baby Christopher Robin. Like, I'm all for that movie. See, okay, so my two MVPs were uh, were Eeyore and the Balloon. Yes. If I could just have Eeyore and Balloon movie, I would be happy as a clam. You can throw Rue in there too, <laughs> young Christopher Robin, that's great too. But I want Eeyore and the Balloon. Okay, so let's talk about the Balloon. I love the balloon. <laughs> um, there was this adorable red balloon that um, Christopher Robin had bought Pooh um, when Pooh kind of popped out in London, England. <laughs> um, and they were kind of running through the streets of London and Christopher Robin bought this balloon for Pooh and he carried it throughout running through the streets of London he carried it into the hundred acre woods back again with um Christopher Robin and I'll let Sarah I'll let you love this balloon so I'll, I'll this is your moment I'll let you <laughs> love the balloon. I love the balloon because okay so as they're running they go through the train station and there were parts of it that I was whole that was the best part of the movie to me was them running through the train station and poo with his balloon it was so good so like the entire movie i didn't want to look at poo because in my mind that's not who, how winnie the pooh looks and so this balloon going through everything just added so much uh to every scene because like as we talked about they were it was dark it was kind of grayed out like there wasn't it wasn't vibrant, but then you have this bright red balloon that you can look at, and it brought so much, um, so much interest to what was going on in front of me, and I was just so excited to watch the balloon, and they they animated it so well, like even the string was so detailed, it was twine, and there was just so much about this balloon that I just I loved. It brought this this element of wonder and magic um, to the movie that I really felt was missing for the majority of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I, I also too loved the red balloon. Um, I turned to you in the theater and I said, have you seen that French film with the red <laughs> balloon? Um, which we then <laughs> looked up afterwards because I couldn't remember the title or what year it was from. But I really wonder if it was an intentional, if they were intentionally referencing this French film called, it's just called The, French, the Red Balloon. Um, it's from 1956. And it's so similar to the same themes mm. and everything as those scenes with Pooh and Christopher Robin. It's this little boy who has this friendship um, that's really sweet with this red balloon that he's kind of, um, in his imagination, he sees it as his pet that he's going throughout Paris through. And it's, it's, a, it's a silent film with the most whimsical, sweet music um, behind it. And it's him going throughout Paris, talking to different people, talking to nuns on the street. Um, and he animates this... Uh, animates is the wrong word, but the little boy really personifies this um, red balloon as he's going throughout the streets of Paris. And it's, I really wonder if they, this was kind of a little hats off to that 1956 French film. If not, it's a really interesting coincidence, <laughs> but I can't imagine that it wasn't a reference to that. But um, the same, same, similar themes as far as, uh, this wonder and this magic and this whimsy that Pooh also represents and now this balloon also represents. You know what I just thought of as well? Have, what? 
you've seen Schindler's List. Do you remember that, um, the little girl in the red coat? Yes. Yes. And it's set, <sighs> and it's just her red coat that is in color against this black and white background of all of the soldiers. Yeah. Say similar, like that contrast of this youth and innocence, this red, vibrant thing amidst a sea of cold, industrial, black and white. Oh, yes. I love that. I love yeah. those kind of juxtapositions that you can find. Um, and I think that's why I just, I loved the train scene so much, mm. you know, or this train station so much is, you know, you have all these people bustling to and fro and they're late for their meetings and they have to go, you know, they have to go catch the train and it's this, this rushed, hurried thing. And then you have this, this one red balloon that's just like bobbing through the entire station. And it just, it makes you smile. You know, you hear, you hear the clack of the trains and you hear the steam rush and you hear people moving about, but you can look at this red balloon and there's just something that's so um, peaceful and joyful about it. Um, but so many people are missing it. And I feel like that's a really um, important message in, in finding joy in the little things. Um, and I kind of wish that that's more where they had gone with the message of this movie instead of actually where they went. It's a great segue. <laughs> Shall we pivot to... Yeah, you up really well with that one. <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, the thesis of the film. Yes. So... <sighs> one of the quotes that's repeated several times throughout the film is, um, well, there's two actually, which are the two opposing views. One that Christopher Robin has at the beginning that he receives from his boss. And then the one at the end that he adopts that he received from Pooh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to butcher these cause I don't remember the exact wording of it, but the one that he receives at the beginning from his boss is that dreams aren't made out of nothing. Nothing comes from nothing. And the one that Christopher Robin then receives at the end from Pooh that Pooh is continuously telling him throughout this film is there is something special that comes from doing absolutely nothing. Yes. Sarah, what are your, what, what is your sentiment perspectives on that being the thesis of the film? Well, I have many, many thoughts about this. Um, But my first thought when, when Pooh, kept talking about some things come from doing nothing it just it made me want to go watch Seinfeld I was like oh yeah I want to watch a show about nothing I'm gonna go watch Seinfeld it's amazing I don't want to watch this anymore I want to watch that um but I just I'm I hate that so many movies uh vilify work you know I I will admit I'll be the first to admit that I am a workaholic and I love working. And so especially this year, I've been trying to find that balance and not finding my identity in work. Um, But I'm never going to vilify work. I, I, I love that. You know, I love being able to work and, and do what I do and help people with what I make and like all of these things. So I think this culture of um, working is bad, doing nothing is good you know, those extremes are unhealthy. And this movie wasn't um, complex enough um, to hold that tension of, you know, you need, to, you need a balance of both. You can't just be a workaholic, but you also do need to work to provide for your family. So you, you, need, you need both. You need to have life with your family and you need to have work as well. And work is not bad. Family is not bad. Both of them are good, but you need to have that balance. And this movie did not communicate that. No, it did not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The person that originally had said that first quote around nothing comes from nothing, um, dreams are not made, dreams are not achieved without work. He is the villain in the end. And when he said that quote, I was like, yes, homeboy, preach it because it is true. Dreams do not come out of nothing. And it's, it's naive to think that they do. And 
I think the worry that I have is that kids that are watching this movie don't have the the capacity to see those nuances and take this extreme idea of something special comes out of nothing and kind of take it into their current context of I'm working and oh that what that actually means is maybe I could take a break once in a while I can sit out on my porch for a Saturday night and just enjoy a glass of lemonade like I can do that it's okay to take time for that and that doing nothing is okay but I don't like that taking in that extreme into my context where I'm the same I am definitely a productive uh fanatic I I hate not doing anything um I really welcome that in and it's like ah yes I can do nothing for a bit and it's okay and yeah that that was great for me but for the five six seven year old they don't have as much of the capacity to think about those nuances and well, may may run the risk of taking it at face value. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah, yeah. And I kept thinking about um, what was it? Albert Einstein. He was working on what was it the theory of relativity, and he was working at the patent office. Office, and he was he was doing something meaning menial, and he was letting his brain and his creativity work in the background. And that's I feel something that this movie probably could have touched on is, you know, just because you're, you're working doesn't mean that you still can't be creative or doesn't mean that you still can't be whimsical or, you know, sometimes it's okay to go do nothing so that you can be creative. You know, there's something to be said about daydreaming or, or, you know, looking out outside, outside and observing nature or, you know, whatever, there's something to be said about those moments, but man, it's just, it's not all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially the way that final scene unfolded where, uh, I just have so many problems with this. So kind of unpacking it a little bit. So the, the way the final scene unfolded where that, that <laughs> genius idea that Christopher Robin got around how if we lower the prices, more people will buy the luggage who worked for a suitcase company. More people will buy suitcases and then we'll keep the company afloat. And how it was because he was doing nothing that he was able to see that graph from an upside down perspective and come up with this. Mm -hmm. One, that's not a genius business idea. It's pretty basic. (laughs) Supply and and pricing, like pretty basic. Mm -hmm. But two, that idea that things will fall into your lap when you're doing nothing. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. I think it's a really dangerous perspective to begin to have. It's it true. Sometimes sometimes taking a break, as you said, can refresh our minds, help us see things from different angles, but it doesn't happen like the way it did in the film. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And I really compare this movie to Inside Out. Also a children's Mm -hmm. movie. Also deals with um, many of these topics and themes that are really important for kids to begin to think about and grasp. And Inside Out did an incredible job of capturing the nuances of our emotions and how it it didn't swing to the other side of, yes, we should always welcome sadness and never welcome joy. It really brought it together to paint a more nuanced picture for kids and in a way that's visual with the memory balls having different color, both sadness and joy on them together in this bittersweet memory that's visual for kids to grasp. Like I think Inside Out did such a good job of bringing a nuanced perspective for kids to begin to chew on that this one just swung all the way like a pendulum (laughs) to the other side yes yeah. yeah we kept like as we were watching making references to inside out and inside out is just so much better like yeah. oh man that's if you are debating should I go see Christopher Robin and or should I see inside out that I haven't seen yet because I've been waiting for whatever reason go see inside out like yeah. go wherever it's streaming or if it's at Redbox still it's probably not but borrow it from somebody watch inside out it is a much better movie <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, things don't have to be 
black and white the way that I think a lot of films and especially for kids often paint them to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah. it's uncomfortable to hold that tension. You know, mm-hmm. if you're, it's, it's a lot easier to make an extreme statement or a black and white statement because then, um, and you don't have to exercise wisdom, but if you, if you're talking about moderation or you're talking about, Oh, there needs to be a balance. Then that means that you actually have to take responsibility and you have to make decisions. And you know, if there's tension and it's hard, um, it's so much easier to just say, Oh, nothing is better than working. Like mm-hmm. do nothing. It'll be great. Like mm-hmm. a lot easier to say than, you know, find joy in the little things or infuse wisdom in, or whimsy into your day or, um, Hey, maybe don't build your whole life around work. <laughs> maybe one time with your family too. They kind of like you treasure that <laughs> while it lasts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I wonder, um, how this film would be different in, uh, different eras of our history, right? Like we, mm-hmm. the, as, as, the, the creators and the writers of this film have definitely chosen a specific message for a specific audience of mm-hmm. an American working um, audience that many of which are workaholics. And I have friends that are in investment banking and just the demands of their job have them at work from six in the morning till 1 a.m. at night. Like we are definitely a culture that values work, especially the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people's identities begin to get wrapped up into them. And so it was a very intentional decision that they've chosen this to be the message of all the themes they could have pulled out from the story and the world of Winnie the Pooh. This is the one that they've chosen to pull out. And it really relates to this idea of a shame-based um, mentality and identity when we put our worth and value in the wrong thing. And I know you... Um, have some thoughts on this that we begin to talk 100%. So uh, right now I'm reading a book that's called Healing the Shame That Binds You. It's all about, you know, identifying shame in your life and, and what shame can lead to. And so it's, it's like that phrase, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. So for me right now, like everything is shame. It's like, oh, workaholism, shame, perfectionism, shame. Like it's all, it's all shame. So um, when we started watching this movie, and it was in the opening credits portion because they jumped through time so much. Um, like immediately, I was like, oh my gosh, he is, you know, he is filled with shame for you know because there's this scene in the beginning where he's he's drawing he's at boarding school and he just had to leave the hundred acre, hundred acre wood and so he's far from where he feels comfortable and he's away from his friends and so he's drawing a picture of Winnie the Pooh and then the the teacher lady comes with a ruler and like thwacks his hand and you know I'm like oh shame was introduced into his life and then you know it, it cuts through all of these other scenes and I just see how the shame develops into these other other things so like his workaholism um and then it shows his daughter and that's what got me I was like oh no oh no because there's this phrase and it's that hurting people hurt people and that's Mm -hmm. exactly unintentionally what he did to his daughter and um she's laying in her bed. He had been working all day. He comes up um, and she's like, Hey dad, will you read me a story? And he's like, Oh yeah, of course. And he's all excited. And she has this book um, sitting under her pillow that she is so excited to read with him. And instead he pulls off this like giant encyclopedia um, (laughs) off of her nightstand and begins reading about, I don't even know what it was like the fall of the Roman empire. (laughs) Like, obnoxious that no kid wants to learn about um and you just see like she slips the book back under her pillow and you can just see how upset she is on her face and she did a great job she's a great little actress Mm -hmm. um but I was like oh that stinks you know she just she wants her father to love her you know in a more tangible way instead of showing his love through what um through providing for her. She just wants him to be with her. And so just the way that that cycle of shame 
kind of continued into her life. Um, but by the end, theoretically, they had both broken free from some of that. But it was just, it was so interesting to me. Like immediately I was like, oh no, oh no, there's so much shame going on. Mm. Oh no, just freaking out in my seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's And it's crazy how it, how unaware of it he was, you know? Mm. And how much his wife was trying to draw his attention away from it. And I really... I sympathized with him a lot because I think that is a really difficult place to be in when you're stuck between your job at work, which is to serve your family and then to be with your family. Like I think that dilemma and that stalemate of being stuck between a rock and a hard place is one that a lot of people are going to be able to relate to. Oh yeah. The soccer games after work that you can't make because you know, you have this really important meeting that's running long. Can you say no to that? I mean, as a provider for your, for your family, it's hard to say no to that. And it's, it's just really difficult decisions like that, that are, um, I think a lot of people will relate to that. Yeah, definitely. And I don't even know, I, Sarah, not Sarah and I are both not parents. So, um, I can't even imagine it's, it's hard for him too. You know, like I could see his anguish at the beginning of him genuinely wanting to go away to the cottage, but he just simply could not. And the demands of the world were just encroaching on him. And he, yeah. it's, it's, I really felt for Ian Will McGregor. Yeah, he, I mean, he really did have the weight of the world on his shoulders and yeah. he didn't, he didn't want to, you know, disappoint anybody and he didn't want to lose this job because he wanted to provide for his family. And it was, you know, after the war. So jobs were kind of in short supply. Mm -hmm. uh, but then also he had this responsibility to everyone that he worked with and he managed. Mm -hmm. He also wanted to uh, protect their jobs and he wanted to make sure that they were doing well. So he was just, he had all of these different you know, things that he was juggling and it's a really hard position to be in. So I definitely empathize with that, mm -hmm. but man, I feel like there's a better moral. <laughs> to yes. Be all of that. <laughs> like, because, because after this movie, after the credits rolled in this imaginary world that they created, he's still having to try and keep all of these different balls in the air. Like, his family didn't change. His job didn't change. He's still managing people. Like he still has all of these issues that he has to, you know, contend with and doing nothing isn't going to be the solution to make any of them better. So yeah, like a good, um, I feel like it wasn't a good moral for yeah. the rest of his life. And I think that's where a lot of that's where wisdom shines. It's in those really ambiguous choices between two good things or, you know, it's yeah. neither is right or wrong. It's choosing between two good things and how do you do that? And that's, yeah. that's that wisdom. You're, and you're so right. His same dilemma is going to come up again when there's another weekend that his family wants to go to the cottage and there's going to be another important meeting. It may be... You know, it's it's not going to be, oh, let's just go to the cottage, whatever. It's it's too simple. <laughs> it's too simple. Yeah. So, overall thoughts of this film and what you would give it out of out of 10. Like if you would oh, recommend this no. Oh no. I'm so Which is bad. hard to put numerics, I know. I'm so bad at like valuing things like that. Okay, so my uh my overall opinions are it's one of those that it could have been good, but I feel like they didn't give it a full effort. And there were some good bones to it. Um but it just man, didn't quite it wasn't quite up to snuff. Um, so I would say, uh, unless there is a cheap theater in your vicinity, <laughs> wait until this comes to 
Redbox or whatever streaming service it'll be on. Just wait. You're really not missing much. That train scene is the best part of the whole movie, probably. Um, and you can wait for that. So, I don't know. On a scale of 1 to 10, maybe like a 4. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in there. 4 sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I share a similar sentiment. I think there's there could have been a lot of potential for it to be moderately okay. The same way that I feel like the Jungle Book did the best that it could with what it had, given all of the pieces that it had to play with, that Disney mm-hmm. did the live-action Jungle Book film. Um, in general, I'm just not a fan of this whole live-action trend, so that definitely taints uh, my view of all of these movies that Disney's <laughs> going to be coming out with. I just don't – It's just I heard this described about the Han Solo movie. It shouldn't have even exist to begin with, so it's hard to begin to – <laughs> recommend or not recommend it. Like, I just don't think this movie needed to be created. Yeah, I but, agree. Um, and given that it has been, a lot of things were just a slightly off. Yeah. Um, not in a way that was super, like, didn't make me shrivel up and just cringe, but just slightly off in a way that's just like, it left you feeling a little bit... Um, a little bit off. Yeah. It didn't feel full and satisfying. So I would give this a three. One for it not needing to exist and two for <laughs> not living to the potential that it could, it could have had. So that was our yeah. <laughs> sentiments on Christopher Robin. You know, it's really funny Sarah and I always, before talking, before going to see this movie, said that it would be a Disney roast of Christopher Robin. Yes. And I think we definitely roasted the film. But I actually also think we talked and dove into a lot of other topics that um, that were touched on in the film, presented in the film, that were not related to the film at all, really. The idea of shame and how that gets passed on through generations and the idea of work and the place of work in our American society, um, some of the visual components of it and the different platforms of animation, live action, this new trend that Disney is just going to town with. Um, <laughs> and I, this is one of the things that I love about film and especially seeing films with people that have that reflective and critical and analytical mind is you you see the film with them but you actually get to know them a lot by their reactions and the things they notice in films the characters that they love in films and what that what where that comes from within them why there's a certain character that they really relate to so i i love that we roasted the film but <laughs> in a meaty way where we dove into kind of more bigger topics than just the roast. <laughs> yeah, me too, completely. So um, this is our uh, strategic whimsy uh, experiment. So to those of you who are listening, if you want to have a strategic whimsy experiment, I encourage you to find a friend and um, go watch a movie with them. You know, go see a movie that you both have never seen. You can even just, you know, invite them over, watch something on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever. And then instead of just like, oh, that was good, or oh, I didn't like that, and then leaving, actually sit down and talk about it and learn something about that other person um, based on what they loved or what they hated and and just enjoy it. Really sink your teeth um, into the movie and see what you can pull out of it like we've done today. Yeah, and this is going to be the beginning of our strategic whimsy experiment. Um, <laughs> Essentially, the way I think about this is Sarah and I love films. We talk about films all the time. We love analyzing them and picking them apart. We love learning about each other through getting to see these films. And now we're just going to record all of our conversations. And um, and that 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 is our strategic whimsy experiment. Do we have a strategy? 
Do we have a plan forward for this? <laughs> not really. We're just doing this because we thought, why not? It's frivolous. It's whimsical. It's strategic. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. Exactly. Just purely for the sake of fun. Sounds like Christopher Robin uh, really rubbed off on us, Sarah. It My really goodness. Something special new. comes out of nothing. <laughs> Oh, man. And with that, we hope you guys are having a lovely week. Um, and tune back to hear what we'll review next. Yep. We'll see you guys next time. All right. Bye, guys.